Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. So hi, my name is Olaf Stander. I am in Burnt Island. I'm a council candidate for Ward 9 on Five Council, Burnt Island, Kinghorn and West Cody. I live here, but I work in Edinburgh at the Scottish National Party uh, headquarters as a digital media officer. Um, I've been an active pro-independence campaigner since about 2013. Uh, I'm active in anti-austerity um, movements. I've been helping out Ukrainian refugees as well, and I'm active in a community radio in Kukodi. Hi everyone, I'm Emma Knox. I'm up here in the beautiful highlands of Scotland, or the Bahamas of the North, as I like to call it. <laughs> I've been a councillor for five years, and I can honestly say being a councillor is one of the best things I've ever done. I'm standing for re-election in the ward of Ayrton Loch Ness. So Ness is one of my constituents. I'm a lawyer by trade. I spent 19 years as a prosecutor, had various roles in the pros- in the fiscal service including head of victims policy in crown office and latterly the district procurator fiscal in Inverness and um, I currently work for chest heart stroke Scotland supporting people with chest heart stroke and long COVID conditions to get their lives back sort of like I did I had a serious car accident it caused a change in direction so that I did not to be a lawyer anymore I was going to go out there and help people work for the third sector and stand for election and I've never I've never looked back I'm loving it Hi, uh, my name is Lloyd Melville. I'm coming to you live from uh, sunny Monifeath, which is uh, Angus's premier East Coast town, in my opinion. Um, I'm the candidate for uh, Ward 4 on Angus Council, which is Monifeath and Sidlaw. I'm the current national convener of SNP Students. I'm a former customer services manager in a major business, and I'm looking to bring energy and ideas to Angus Council to deliver real change for everybody who lives here. Well, welcome to Scotland's Choice, uh, all of you. It's um, fantastic to have you here. Olaf, let's come to you first. What initially got you into politics and, and how did you become part of the independence movement? I was born in Poland and I came to Scotland when I was 11. Um, sort of integrating into Scotland and feeling very welcomed as part of a wave of EU migrants uh, in, in 2004, obviously, EU enlargement, that's when Poland and the other countries joined. Lots of other people came to Scotland at the same time. And um, I suppose the, the contrast as well of growing up in Poland in relative comfort uh, and then living in relative poverty in Scotland after coming here, sort of starting from scratch, um, living in a council state uh, for a couple of years and just 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 the experience really of, uh, of poverty, of um, we still had a new Labour government at that point, but have lived through austerity under David Cameron and, and many Tory governments. I have uh, known a lot of people that had to use food banks and so on, and it's been a very acute impact. I never really saw myself as a nationalist in terms of, sort of flag waving or in terms of a brave heart sort of uh, identity. Um, I've lived in England as well a couple of years uh, before coming back to uni in Aberdeen. So I, I see myself uh, as very much of a kind of Polish Scot with an English connection as well. Uh, so it's not about not about nationalism, but it's about building a better uh, country that's free from austerity, that's more equal, that's more prosperous. That's a bit like Ireland or Denmark or Finland. 
countries that have not the same amount of resources that Scotland does, but they're thrive anyway. Well, thanks for that, uh, Olaf. Uh, Lloyd, um, tell us what got you into politics and your part in uh, becoming part of the independence movement. Sure. So uh, like a lot of people, uh, I come at this from a different angle in that in 2014, um, I supported no. Uh, please don't crucify me. Um, and Nobody it, it wasn't until Brexit, really, that it became apparent to me that the UK doesn't work for Scotland. Um, looking you know, I was 15 years old when the Brexit uh, result came through. And looking at the map, it just was so clear to me that Scotland is so ill-served by the Westminster system. And that's what really got me into politics. And I started doing a bit more research. I joined the SNP on my 16th birthday, and I haven't looked back since. Um, and for me, independence, like Olaf, is about, you know, making the most of the massive resources and talent that we have in Scotland to build a fairer society that we can't do with the current limited powers and current political direction of the UK. So that's where I am. That's what got me into politics. And I also don't see myself as a nationalist. Uh, I'm more of an internationalist wanting to reconnect Scotland to the world and play our part in tackling things like climate change and global poverty. Just same question to you. You know, obviously you've you've kind of covered quite a lot of that in your uh, your intro about the fact you had a major change and you decided to get into politics and put something back. What was it that drew you to the independence movement, though? Well, I suppose I've always been part of it. Well, it feels like I've always been part of the independence movement. My family got me into politics at a really early age. I'm showing my age, I suppose, but I remember leafleting with my dad for Winnie Ewing. It must have been 1979 when she stood for Marianne Nairn. So I've done my legwork, that's for sure. Um, I really honestly don't remember ever not wanting Scotland to be an independent nation. It always seemed to be a natural and normal thing to want. So uh, before we uh, kick off on the uh, questions I want to ask you today, how is everybody's campaign going? Well, I'll kick off. It's, it's brilliant, but it's tiring. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, you've covered a lot of ground. We've seen your posts on social media. I'm, I'm trying everything. I'm doing a bit on the tricycle, a bit on my feet and a bit in the electric car. And my husband, we've got a tandem and I've even managed to persuade Dave to get out and stoke for me. So we're both out. For, for, anybody, who, for anybody who doesn't know, um, Emma's uh, ward, she's a sitting councillor going for re-election, is the same size as Luxembourg. Exactly, yeah. So I'm going to be fit as a fiddle by the end of this. But I, I did forget how much I really love getting out and about, to be honest. I'm really enjoying it. People are a wee bit more reticent to speak for as long now. I think that's maybe COVID. So people will come to the door and give you a big cheery smile and a thumbs up. Or sometimes a thumbs down, but not very often. But yeah, loving it. It's going really well. Is that your experience, Lloyd, just now, that people waving at you and... Uh, well, I don't know, well everybody, not, everybody also but, always says a great reception on the doorstep. I think that goes yeah, with every do. political they party. But what's it? What's it actually like for you just now? It's it's going really well. Uh, like Emma, I love campaigning. Uh, I absolutely love it. It, it, it. You know, it's amazing. Gets the steps up, and and it's it's all for the cause. But uh, our campaign's very well underway. The response I've had from the folk I've been chatting to so far has been really really good. Uh, both myself and the sitting councillor Beth Whiteside, who's our SNP group leader in Angus. Uh, we're working really, really hard to to both get elected, and we're also very hopeful. So things are going very well. And Olaf, for you, well, it's going it's going pretty good. Uh, we're off to a pretty strong start. I think we've covered around a third of our leaflet from uh, a third of our ward leaflets already. Uh, we've been pounding the doors pretty much every single day um, until sunset. I'll let you into a secret. It's not always 
sunny in Burnt Island. So we had a couple of snowstorms recently and we kept on going anyway. Uh, we had a couple of street stalls as well. And, and we had some really productive conversations as well, uh, some in-depth conversations about, you know, local issues that have really been sort of bubbling up in, in town. So in Burnt Island, we might uh, talk, about, uh, talk about that later. We have a uh, harbour that's been fenced off by uh, a port operator that's very controversial at the moment. We've got uh, issues with uh, housing that need to be fixed. We, we have a lot of local issues that are particular to, to, to the town, but also across Scotland. Um, it's been going very well. I, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for what the SNP has done across Scotland. I think people feel that with the cost of living biting. Uh, people have been mentioning the stuff like Scottish child payment, for example, rising to £20 a week. They, these and, things really cut through to families and their, ah, their homes, think, don't they? Because contrast yeah, between yeah. the sort of Tory austerity and Rishi Sunak's smoke and mirrors. Well, they, well, especially, you know, getting these benefits from the Scottish government at a time when they can see, usually, you know, because we're, we're talking about an awful lot of people, including a lot of working people, seeing their universal credit, um, you know, payments cut as well. It's, it's quite noticeable, isn't it? Well, it's, it's noticeable, but, but it's, it's callous and it's shameless in the first place that the Tories even went there and cut universal credit at a time when the cost of living is the, the highest it's been for decades, at a time when Brexit is still high, you know, hitting families and businesses. It's just it's just callous, and I think people are seeing through this. And if you take Partygate into this as well and the sort of contempt with which Boris Johnson has treated the, the rest of us, I think a message of, of, of hope and optimism and constructive politics that are not tribal, I think that resonates across life. It, it certainly does. It, it, we know that 18 councillors in Scotland um, in, in local authority elections have already been elected effectively because the wards that they're standing in weren't contested. And and there's no doubt that, you know, if you put yourself forward for council, which we'll talk, talk about in a wee minute or two, uh, when you put you forward, you, you, you're intending to do a good job there. So there's no disrespect to those people who have been automatically elected uh, in uncontested uh, wards. But it's not great for local democracy, is it? I mean, we, we all know that uh, our communities have got lots of people in them who make extraordinary efforts to give up their time uh, to advocate uh, uh, out and help out in the community. Um, why do you feel that, uh, that so few people want to put themselves forward as uh, candidates to be councillors? Well, look, firstly, big congratulations to the candidates that get elected. It doesn't matter that they were uncontested. They're still going to be serving their communities and, and working hard and, and they deserve credit for standing. Uh, it's not easy uh, putting yourself forward. I think uh, councils a lot of the time get overlooked in terms of what they do. Um, councils get a lot of the blame, but not as much attention. And it's not really about attention. It's just about the fact that a lot of the time people don't know exactly what the councils are responsible for. Um, the amount of powers in councils could also be uh, increased and, and there's a bit of a disconnect often between communities and councillors. People don't really know what, what exactly they, they, they do. Um, why do not enough people put themselves forward? I think there's clearly barriers to inclusion. Um, there are gender barriers, race barriers, class barriers. I think in terms of class barriers particularly, um, look, councillors only get paid about 17, 18,000 um, pounds. I'm not advocating that councillors get paid extortionate amounts of money, but I think um, a national living wage at least would be reasonable, given that councillors were key workers during the pandemic, delivering a lot of the key services. We've actually had an SNP conference motion about this that passed overwhelmingly at last conference, calling for councillors to be paid a proper living wage. Um, look, it, it, it's, it's not about living a lavish lifestyle, but it's about attracting people from 
across the board, attracting more working class candidates at the moment, the council salary is just not. I think it's important to promote the work of councillors, to make councillors a bit more easily accessible. We could have more kind of public forums, open democracy. And that's certainly something that we want to promote mm. in, in Fife. But aye, there's lots of barriers to access in politics. Yeah, but before I ask the same question of you, Emma, I just have to recall when I was a councillor, I remember setting off really early in the morning to go to a meeting, uh, which was, you know, a, a good distance away. And I was driving in my own car, uh, you know, on an early morning uh, trip when I was listening to the radio and somebody complaining about councillors being chauffeured around in limousines. And I thought, where are these uh, councillors that are chauffeured around in lim- limousines? You, Emma, you know, we we're talking about the difficulty of getting people standing for council. You, you, why, why do you think not more people would put themselves forward? Um, I, I'm, a, I'm afraid to sound um, like we're only interested in money, but I totally agree with Olaf. I think the salary does put people off. Olaf's mentioned that it works out at less than the minimum wage. But if you look at the, the spectrum of people that are councillors, that demonstrates that the salary is putting people off. They tend to be retired, independently wealthy, or are, like me, have amazingly supportive partner, or have to work a second job. If we want more diversity and a better pool of people on the council, I think we have to pay it realistically, to be honest. And the workload is, is quite considerable. We all know that around the table. I think a lot of people think we're supported by an office. I still get calls from people asking if I'm the office manager or even worse, if I'm the PA. And my husband gets some of those calls now, so that's that's slightly better. <laughs> but we are, we are on our own. You know, we do this all our unsupported so it, it's really it, it's a really important point there isn't that yeah. um support mechanism that's around other elected representatives that you get it when you're a councillor you're doing it all yourself you're going to in your ward which you'll excuse me Olaf and Lloyd because I, I used to represent the same ward you know I know there's something like about uh, 12 community councils 13 uh, your parent councils and you you know Emma will be going out to these time and time again pretty much every night of the week driving enormous distances and bad weather and so forth so it can be quite difficult but I think one thing that comes through from you Emma and the reason you're putting yourself up again is it can also be really rewarding but let's come to Lloyd on that same uh, subject. Yeah I, I completely agree with what Emma and Olaf have said I, I think the the level of um wage that you get is it does put people off i mean we can see that in angus um the most of the administration are older men who also happen to be sort of uh near the retirement age or independently wealthy as well um but i also think that councils and, and councillors can often seem like a bit of an afterthought um in terms of where um priorities lie in terms of political parties and that goes right across the spectrum uh, you know, despite the fact that councils make lots of the really, really crucial decisions to people's lives, a lot of the emphasis, quite rightly, in, in some respects, is paid to uh, Hollywood and Westminster, whereas, you know, it's councils who are really on the sort of front line of delivering a lot of the stuff. Another part of it is access, as Olaf and Emma have said. But there's also an attitude issue that councils are not treated as as really as important as they should be because policies that get made in Holyrood are delivered through council chambers. So I feel like we need to, as folks that live in Scotland, political parties across the spectrum need to really 
focus on councils as a valid and important forum for getting people in to make these decisions. And, and I, I think that's a really important point about the responsibilities of councils and councillors, because I, as an MP, I get lots of uh, emails saying that I should uh, do something. And, and often I have to reply, well, yeah, I'll speak to your councillor because that's actually a council unit. So people don't understand that uh, roads and social care and housing and so forth actually come under the remit of uh, councillors and the councils. And, and there's a lot to that there's an awful lot to that and we know that in other independent countries countries of a similar size to scotland and smaller there are many more councillors uh, per uh, uh, you know per head of population than uh, than there is at the moment across the the nations of the uk We've not only got this twin factor of you know, there is a status issue, there's a reward issue, as you've pointed out, in terms of, well, it's not even reward, it's a, it's a livability issue. Uh, but there's also the, the issue that there isn't the, the kind of recognition of, of the responsibilities that's there. And that's something, hopefully, in this podcast, we can do a wee bit to, uh, uh, to take forward. I, I always feel that when I talk about gender uh, gaps in uh, in politics. It's probably the worst person is somebody who's representative, probably of the majority of uh, kind of white middle aged men uh, in politics saying this. But I won't stop doing it. There is obviously a need to uh, increase uh, gender equality. The the World Economic Forum Gender Gap Report estimates that it'll actually take about 145 years to attain uh, gender parity um, in politics, and women only represent about 26 percent of about 3,000. 500 parliamentary seats wide uh, worldwide uh, and I'm sure these these figures must be even higher for underrepresented uh, groups how do we tackle um, the issue of underrepresentation at a local level if I start with you uh, Lloyd yeah I think we've all got to pitch in as uh, society and political parties so I think uh, things like shortlists and quotas have their place um, but I think we also need to, to all pitch into making politics more accessible and more welcoming for everybody who um, who wants to be involved. Because, I mean, you know, you can't be what you can't see. That's the famous phrase. So making it more acceptable, uh, more accessible, sorry, and welcoming to folk who actually want to get involved uh, will hopefully uh, inspire other people to get in as well. Uh, and also, you know, we've got to employ mechanisms uh, until we can get to that point. What are your thoughts, Emma? Yeah, and I, I think this is something that we all have to be involved in. Everyone here has a responsibility to help make politics more diverse and representative. I'm really chuffed to see Olaf and Lloyd here, for example. We definitely need more younger people in uh, elected positions. There's loads of fabulous young activists, but I want to see them being elected. So they actually have some um, involvement in the decision-making process. I very strongly feel that as a disabled person and a woman, it's my job to encourage, but also to support other disabled people and women so that they they can stand for election. They feel empowered to do that. I completely agree with you, uh, Lloyd. It's about being seen. So if I see someone like me doing it, I'm much, much more likely to feel that I can do it. It sort of gives me permission, but it's about being supportive, going they're mentoring, showing people, bringing them in, shadowing. You know, there's loads of ways that we can make it more accessible. But everyone has a responsibility. Everyone in this room and everyone that's involved in politics at any level. In, indeed, and that's uh, the, the case. And this isn't a party political issue. This is something we need to do to enhance our democracy. What What are your thoughts, Olaf? Yeah, I 100% agree and, and echo what Emma and Lloyd said there. I think it's all about empowerment, empowerment, empowerment. Um, we have to confront that fact. Politics is quite toxic to a lot of people, and especially to minorities. If you look at Twitter, for example, if you look at the culture with which politics is done, that puts a lot of people off. Um, 
and if you combine that with a lot of the structural issues that 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 men disabled uh, that, that women disabled people LGBT people etc face it's it's difficult uh, there aren't many incentives to get involved so what we need to do is and i know it sounds like a platitude but we need to change the way that we do politics we need to make politics more collaborative we need to make it more grassroots more bottom-up and less adversarial uh we need less of the sort of westminster or boys club culture which is all about you know yabu politics and we need a lot more um working across party lines working together uh, working with with community groups and not just political parties uh and I just, just, just through doing that, inspire people to get involved. It, it is true that a lot of people's view of politics is just that theatre that they see in the House of Commons and the, uh, insults going back and forward. And, and that's not really the, the kind of way that it works. Behind the scenes, you know, both as councillors and uh, MPs and MSPs, there's a lot of uh, collaborative cross-party work that goes on. It's a real shame that that doesn't come through. You'll all know about the uh, Scottish Government's Democracy Matters Local Government Governance Review, which are looking at ways of strengthening communities and local uh, democracy. It's, it's not going to come as a big shock to any of you that um, the survey found that there was a quite an overwhelming desire for much ga- greater control over what happens in the places they know best, their own uh, communities. So I'm interested to hear from all of you on how uh, local councils can help facilitate uh, that kind of change going forward. And Emma, we'll start with you this time, I think. I think a really good start would be meaningful participatory budgeting. At the moment, I don't know what it's like in other councils, but we have these sort of dragon's den style things where there's a pot of money and local groups do a presentation and the audience decides who gets the funding. And that absolutely does not work. And my experience is not participatory. You know, if you have the cutest children or the nicest presentation, you get voted. It's not around me. Um, so I think that, that the community should genuinely be involved in budgeting decisions. They should be given a chance to identify priorities in their local communities. And that should involve businesses, community councils, community trusts but also the people that don't put themselves forward. So we should go and find people and ask for their input into participatory budgeting. So it's genuinely that, it's participatory. I think that would be a really good start. And Lloyd? Yeah, I completely agree uh, with Emma. I mean, we are going into this election with a, a pledge to ramp up participatory budgeting and community empowerment. I mean, part of why I'm standing is because I know that Uh, the current council just doesn't do enough community engagement Uh, and I really really think that we have the opportunity now to radically transform the way that the council uh, interacts with the community and the say that everyday neighbourhoods have over their own future and so that's that's really where where I am on that as well Uh, I think it needs to be meaningful as Emma said involving more than just local projects it's got to involve community councils businesses community forums and all that sort of thing and and Anola one of the things that I'm really passionate about is community wealth building and community wealth building is something that we've started doing in Fife. There's been a report that came out a couple of years ago about how we can make sure that communities own more of the assets uh, that are key to our, to our areas. So it's basically about anchor institutions like hospitals, like colleges, like universities, like the council itself, investing in local supply chains, uh, promoting sort of worker-owned cooperatives, making sure that we spend money locally rather than outsource it to, to elsewhere. It's better for our climate, it's better for our well-being, uh, it, it costs less and it involves communities in the in the process. It's all about democracy from the bottom up. And uh, you've seen that in Preston in England, you've seen that in Cleveland, in Ohio. Uh, North Esher has been doing that pretty well as well. And um, 
and Fife is hopefully going to be another beacon on on the Scottish map of community wealth building and, and this whole approach, not, not just about the toolkit, but about the culture of doing politics from the bottom up. And, and change can happen uh, through, the, the kind of change you're talking about can happen through uh, local politics and, and local authorities. I manifest those for councillors. I just want to give my own experience. When uh, we were elected into the administration in uh, 2012 in Highland, we had a SNP manifesto which got transported immediately into a 127-point uh, programme for administration. Uh, all of those things were either delivered or were put into uh, programmes as long-term uh, uh, changes that are being made. So, you know, when people talk about this being in the, their manifesto and you're being able to vote for it, it's true, you can actually do do that. Just while I'm on about in my time at the, the council, it was my experience then that some uh, communities were really, really good at taking ownership of local issues. I mean that uh, some got more funding and, and kind of greater uh, help. Well, it was not always the case. Those did tend to be more affluent uh, communities. Uh, how do we all work together to help build uh, more capacity in our communities, particularly those ones that don't often get the attention that they need? Maybe Lloyd could start on that. Part of it uh, is about real engagement uh, in the community and comes through community groups like community councils, neighbourhood forums, that sort of thing, but also equipping them with the tools, the resources and the ability to really engage with the council and draw the council's attention to a lot of the big issues locally. Uh, councils obviously have a huge part to play in that by get, getting really in there on the grassroots level, speaking to people in neighbourhoods, saying, you know, what are your views on this? Maybe running sort of many surveys to, to really find out what uh, local communities are thinking and then feed that back to the council and say, this neighbourhood, there's a big issue here. This is what the priority is. I'm going to work with X community group and X forum to really push this at a council level. And by doing that, you're not only ensuring that these issues get solved, but you're also building the confidence in the community that they can actually take these issues to the council and get them dealt with. And that improves participation in local democracy, but also in politics generally. And Olaf, what, what would your thoughts be? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're in a cost of living crisis. There's been 12 years of, of austerity that's been brutal on working class communities. It's understandable uh, by design why working class communities get, get less involved. I mean, if you have to work two or three jobs on a zero contract, if you have to feed your, your family, you may not have as much time for politics and for community engagement. And that's just the brutal reality of it. And we have to confront that. So I think opposing austerity, opposing cuts and making sure that people have you know enough to live on, that we don't have the indignity and, the, and, and horror of families screen for food banks. That's a priority. But I think I think the second priority, and it's equally equally important, is what is what Lloyd was saying. I think it's about empowering community councils, TRAs, to be confident and to take their proposals to council. That also means increasing the, their presence in, in council meetings. So that could be things like surveys, that could be things like open meetings, that could be like democracy forums. I think councils could be harnessing online a bit more, the, 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 the digital consultation methods. That's not been done really a lot. And the pandemic has shown that we can do politics differently without necessarily having to be in a place. So there's a lot of things that we can do, but I think making sure that working class communities get involved, you've got to fix the fundamental issues where working class people have been alienated through austerity, through cuts, through demonization. You've got to reverse that. And I see you nodding your head a lot, uh, Emma. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think we could do a lot as councillors and councils to support 
community to set up trusts and support local groups with governance and things. So I think the governance can be a bit of a turnoff for people. So if we provide really good advice, training, guidance and support, that may encourage them to set up their own trusts. That gives them the ability to apply for funding and money is power. So that, that enables them to start those projects and to help the kind of people Olaf and Lloyd were talking about, but also make it fun and engaging. You know, I think we're all getting much more familiar with social media and culturality and beauty community councils. Facebook page is brilliant. You know, make it make it inclusive and interesting. It's not all about middle-aged men, sorry, Drew, sitting in a room discussing <laughs> planning. You know, and that there's loads of ways. There's We have a fantastic uh, Christmas lights project going on in, in my village of Kirkhill, and we have fundraising events. You know, I think people need to realise it's all those kind of things, not just what they might consider to be the boring or the governance things, if that makes sense. I think the pandemic really helped it, actually because it brought communities together and showed what power they can have and what they can do to help each other um, and to look after each other, provide mutual support. We can keep building on that. You, you could indeed. Just while, while I'm with you um, on this, Emma, you're out the doors at the moment, as are you all. Um, are you finding that people are more or less engaged with the local elections than they were with, say, the uh, Westminster election or even the, the Scottish parliamentary elections? I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you too, there's been a lot of discussion in Westminster. Um, but, but that's good because I think people, are, it feels like they're, they're more engaged in politics, although maybe a bit more tired of politics, if that makes sense. Part of it is still... Is scunner the right word? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah, the perfect word, a good Scottish word. But, but part of it is still on everyone's lips. It's not going away. People are disgusted that those at the top of our government in Westminster were partying. Well, they couldn't they can be with their loved ones or even hug them at, at a funeral. People are really still angry about that. I, I'm feeling like it, people are engaging. Um, there's still a wee bit of, there's still a wee bit scattered, but they feel engaged. Yeah, and, and is that your experience, Olaf? I, I think people are quite engaged. I wasn't, I wasn't quite expecting that because obviously turnouts are normally about forty percent if we're lucky, forty forty five percent. I don't see that reflected on the doorstep. I see people really aware, really, uh, really engaged, really passionate. But I think as Emma alluded to there, uh, I think a lot of people are just quite fed up with the sort of collective cluster of of of, of Westminster and the the, the mixture. The cost of living crisis and Paragate is really getting people talking about politics, getting them excited to choose something different. Obviously, these are Scottish local elections. So we're, we're, we're trying to always keep it down to local issues and how we as councillors can actually use our powers to make things better. So it could be things like community wealth building. It could be things like improving our schools or investing in our public transport. And, and Lloyd, are you finding that um, you know people are scannered with the Westminster cluster burek, as Olaf put it, and is that motivating them for the uh, local elections, or are you having a different experience? No, I, I would completely agree. People can can see the content that they've been treated with by Westminster, particularly through Partygate and the fact that Rishi Sunak is just not doing enough to actually help people put money in their pockets. So there's that element to it, which is sort of the, the overarching uh, context in which we're having these local elections. But but locally in, in Angus and here in Monifit and Sidlaw, people are really, really fed up with the Tory independent council that's running things. Uh, they have been so incompetent 
We've had councillors who've uh, been involved in, in online abuse scandals, uh, you know, running uh, fake accounts to try and dupe voters and also insulting uh, other people. You know, so there's that. But there's also this real sort of hunger for change that I'm sensing among people. People really, really do not like the way that things are being run at the moment. And we locally in the SNP obviously are working really, really hard to convince people that it's the SNP that is the party of positive change here in Angus. And we are. Uh, and we're really working hard to to turn the the hunger for change into votes at the ballot box. And I I feel a lot of that enthusiasm when I'm speaking to different candidates in different parts of Scotland just now. For the, in terms of council policy areas, which which areas do you think are most important? Roads and improving our public transport. Uh, a lot of people are very happy about their free bus travel for under 22s, for example, but. We need to make sure that we actually have bus services that that reach some of the more remote communities that, that we have here. Um, it's really, it's really frustrating, just before you go into the housing thing, it's really frustrating for people in communities when, for example, they might be able to get the one bus in in the morning, but there's yeah. nothing that can get them home after their work. And and that's something that I think is quite common. There's been, since the, uh, the Westminster deregulated buses across the UK many years ago, there's been a systemic problem there, and it's something that has to have a new... Uh, solution, but you were talking going to talk about housing there, weren't you? And 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 it's actually just just going back to buses for a wee bit. It's actually really exciting that the Scottish government has devolved a lot of the powers to local government. Yeah, and people don't understand that that that's a power that the councils have uh, have had recently from the Scottish government. Aye, that's right. So so recently, the Scottish government has devolved powers to set up essentially bus companies that can be run by the local authority, uh, essentially not for profit, and take it out the hands of big operators that are often profit motivated and make it more about community owned transport. And I think that's actually really exciting because you have lots of people, especially young folks, especially working class folk that maybe don't have access to a car. Uh, after the pandemic, they've been, you know, maybe asked to go back to the office, etc., And they're missing out on these opportunities because there's just not enough buses going around. If we can take back um, the, the bus companies and maybe create something a bit like with ScotRail, uh, that'd be very exciting. Um, but in terms of housing, we have a huge amount of uh, council houses in, in Burnt Island, actually, one of the highest in the country uh, in terms of proportion. A lot of these houses uh, just need improved, especially when it comes to disability access. Um, that's something that the council has been investing in quite heavily to make sure that their homes are accessible to all. The one big policy disagreement between Labour and, and us here in Fife is that Labour don't want to buy back um, council homes. They want to build new ones, but obviously that takes a lot longer. We advocate more of a mixed, more of a pragmatic approach that where we need to tackle overcrowding, we just buy them back and give it to the families that need it uh, quicker. And we still build lots of energy efficient new houses, cost of living as well, and making sure that people are helped with the rising energy costs, more energy efficiency, yeah. greener energy, etc. Is, is that the same for you, Emma? Yeah, roads and public transport, roads, roads, roads. <laughs> um, but, but we're really keen as an SMP group to set up a community transport service. Um, that's a particular issue, as you know, in the Highlands too. We're desperate to stop the monopoly of the private bus companies. But of course, the Scottish government funded free bus travel will help. My son just got his free bus pass. He's delighted. We're delighted because we're no longer his taxi service. But but we put loads of money into roads in Ireland. And the budget that the SNP just negotiated in partnership with the administration has secured £10 million last year, another £10 million this year, with £5 million recurring to spend on roads. So we can really bring them up to the standard they should be. Yeah, that, yeah just, what, just before you go on, Emma, yeah. that, that, that's quite um, a, an exceptional thing that's been happening in Ireland where... You know, even in opposition, because we're not an administration, the SNP group has actually worked 
uh, proactively and positively to identify things that they could bring forward to help uh, people in the Highlands and, and actually use their wit and guile to manage to persuade the administration to adopt them. And, and uh, you know, it's a matter of uh, record. This isn't just, you know, oh, oh we did this, we, you know, folk are going, I write, but this is a matter of record that the SMP group, group have managed to do that. So it just shows you the powers that councillors can have, even if they're not in administration, but obviously better if you are, because then you can yeah. get more done. It was a really successful process. On that uh, subject of uh, what's important to the voters in your uh, ward, what would you say are the main issues? In Angus in 2019-20, only 5.7 miles of road were resurfaced locally. uh, And the Courier ran a a big um, article about it saying that some voters might need to wait over 100 years to get some of their roads resurfaced at the current pace of um, improvement that is is going on, which is just not good enough. I think housing is a really big one as well. Uh, We in in Monifeath, in my area, there's a lot of new development of housing going on there. Obviously, some of that is affordable housing, thanks to the policies of the Scottish Government, which is amazing. Um, But it's also about maximising energy efficiency as well, because we know as we uh, try to tackle the climate crisis that having energy efficient warm homes is going to be really, really important. Bus service is also incredibly important. Uh, some of the bus infrastructure in, in uh, there's sort of rural parts of Sidlaw, like in Strathmartin, is just atrocious. And the council's not done enough to, to look after that. So that's something else. And uh, I'm also really excited about the opportunities given to local councils uh, through the uh, devolution of more uh, power over buses. This is about, you know, the the Scottish government should give councils uh, more money, often comes from political opponents, uh, doesn't it? And I I find this particularly interesting because I know that Scottish government's done, with its fixed budget, uh, done an awful lot to try and support uh, local government and free up funding for them. And I've got to reflect on local government funding in England. We were hearing MP after MP, even from the Tories, uh, saying that they're, uh, they're councils were facing cuts of 45% and more and 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 MPs saying that their councils wanted to hand back the keys uh, to the Westminster government because they just couldn't run things anymore. Um, you know, so there is a need for uh, more money to go into a local government, but you can only do that if you control the resources and have the levers that uh, allow you to, to do that. If all the voters in your wards were online just now, what would your pitch be to them? on how important it is to vote in this election, Olaf? Well, if the falls my head, then the suburb will probably crash because we have <laughs> 10,000 voters in my ward. Uh, look, I think it's really important that you use your power. Um, I know it sounds like a cliche, but this is the, the one time when you can shape the direction of the council. Uh, all it takes is just put the one, two or three in a, in a ballot. And it's really important that you don't let apathy win. Uh, a lot of the time, the Tories are actually counting on young people, working class people and others not turning out because that's the way to keep business as usual. Um, If people are not engaged in politics, it's easier to pursue cuts and damaging agendas like that and get away with things like Parkgate and so on. So I think it's really important that you just get out and vote. It doesn't matter who you vote for, but use that power, speak to your councillors, study the manifestos, and then democracy doesn't end on the 5th of May. It actually starts there engage with the councillors, speak to them, um, engage in your community council. All of that is really important because if we truly want a collaborative sort of bottom-up politics, we have to build it ourselves. We have to build it together. Okay. And Lloyd? Yeah, uh, it's time for change, really. And we have a really exciting opportunity on the 5th of May to build for the future. 
Uh, but we've got to really think about the kind of future that we want. Do we want it to be a future of community empowerment, of tackling climate change, tackling poverty, providing for the people who live here? And you don't get that by staying at home. You get that by getting to the ballot box, however you do it, whether it's by post, by proxy or in person. And you get that by voting SNP one, two or three in some words. And uh, Emma, what would your uh, your pitch be to the the voters about why it's important to vote in this election? I would I would just stress to everyone that politics isn't a dirty word. Life is politics. Politics is everything we do. Um, politics is the roads we travel on, the school our children go to, housing, tourism, bins. Politics is about community and mutual support, involvement and empowerment. It's about pulling together to help each other out, as we did during the pandemic. It's a, it's a, it's a cracking point, because I often have to remind my constituents that, like me, the, the Scottish government and, uh, and local councillors, local councils are dealing with... Uh, uh, working with policies that we're being uh, that, that we're being having imposed on us by Westminster, and much of the local budgets we've been talking about how do we support people in this uh, cost of living crisis. Much of the local budgets are also used to mitigate the impacts of the draconian Westminster policies. We only have to look at again what a big kind of ticket item where the Scottish government's having to pay to uh, to mitigate the bedroom tax every year, which is still out there, you know. Uh, why do you believe, Lloyd, this would change with independence? Well, first of all, it would stop us getting Tory governments that we uh, don't vote for and haven't voted for in nearly 70 years, um, uh, which for me is, is a fundamental point in that uh, the government will be led by the people who live here. Uh, and I don't say that from uh, any sort of narrow uh, nationalist point of view. I say that in terms of that the people who best know the priorities of our communities, of our towns, our cities, our little villages across the country are the people who live there and the people who live here in Scotland. And I think taking the the democratic route, uh, having all of these choices made in Scotland by the people of Scotland is the best way to make use of all the resources and the talent that we have as a country and we can really deliver some positive change, but also some really transformational change in a lot of communities across the country. And that's what independence brings. And it's true to say, Olaf, that you know, it, independence doesn't cure all the problems and it doesn't mean that no government in an independent Scotland would ever make any mistakes or have any issues there, but it does mean that you don't have these things uh, imposed on you. I, I think a lot of people just don't realise the, the cost of Tory governments that we're actually faced with. There is often the talk of a union dividend. Do you remember in 2014, they promised us, I think, a 1,200 that whole? I think there was a whole list union of things dividend. that were promised in 2014. We, we yeah. promised lower food prices, lower energy prices, all of that. And, and today, you know, families are being hit with enormous cost of living crisis, which obviously is not solely caused by, by, by the Tories. That, that, is, that is not entirely truthful to suggest, but it's been exacerbated by the Tories. And if you look at how other countries, independent countries, have managed the cost of living crisis. You've had Bulgaria freezing its energy and electricity prices. You've had France capping at 4% versus 54% in the UK. You've had countries like Germany and Belgium giving one-off payments much more generous than Rishi Sunak's Wonga-style £200 loan. So I think it's really important that we see the possibilities of independence. Um, as you've mentioned there, Drew, we're spending £600 million mitigating the bedroom tax, which not a single Scot has voted for. And yet we're paying six hundred million pounds from a squeezed budget. That's if, if you count it per head of population in Scotland, that's about one hundred and ten pounds per person. Um, so I think it's 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 about being honest and it's about making sure that 
we don't just offer a rosy view that everything will be better overnight with independence. That's dishonest. I think we have to confront a lot of the challenges that, that we face. We have to speak more about issues like currency and borders and so on. But ultimately, it's about transformative change and it's about putting the powers in the hands of the Scottish people so that we don't have to mitigate Westminster governments or suffer from, from Boris Johnson and their contemptuous government so that we can build a better Scotland together. And it's that mitigation you were talking about that's part of the problem because they're constantly having to do these things to, to make effect to policies. And you were saying quite rightly that not all of the problems that are occurring in the cost of living crisis just now are, uh, you know, are, are the resp- they're the fault of the Westminster government. A lot of them are. <laughs> and, it, you know, I, I, as regular listeners will know to this podcast, I cover international trade. And you only have to look at the, uh, the horrendous uh, impacts of Brexit on, for example, the cost of goods in the shops. You know, speaking to to one uh, distributor yesterday is saying that the, the increased costs coming in of uh, paperwork and so forth have put a product that he sells for about seven or eight pounds up by one pound twenty. Um, you know, and these are just purely down to the the, the Brexit costs of uh, uh, of import on that. So Emma, um, do you, do you feel that we could that we could change things for the the positive? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned some things are not the fault of Westminster, but one thing that's very clearly the fault of Westminster, exacerbated by Brexit, is the hostile environment. And in the Highlands, we have a, a lovely, warm, welcoming environment. We'd be a better place to attract people to come and live and work in the Highlands. That would boost the local economy, enabling us to reach our potential. There's so many opportunities here. Tourism, green energy, biotechnology, health sciences. But we need people to come and work here to support those industries. It's a welcome environment, not a hostile environment we need. Well, I'm going to give you this question then, because we're, we're, I'm going to ask you all this question. I would come to you one after another with the same question. And I think this should be quite an easy one for me, given what you've just said. But if you could implement one change over UK policy at the moment, what would it be? Yeah, um, I'm going to cheat and, and give you two, because I mentioned immigration. That's obviously the big can. one. I would change immigration policy and make it much easier for people to come here. But I'd also change the benefits, bring all benefits. All benefits should be in our control so that we can apply the Scottish Social Security approach, which we've now started rolling out very successfully. Thank you. And Olaf, your, your one policy or change from the current situation to uh, the one that you could do in an independent Scotland? Gosh, I, I, by the way, I couldn't agree more with Emma in terms of in terms of social security and uh, immigration. As as someone who's Polish and EU citizen, I'm really passionate about that. One. I could talk about it for hours, but I think not to repeat Emma's great points. I would say probably implement a windfall tax on uh, companies that have made enormous profits during the pandemic. Uh, we often have Labour uh, calling for us to do that. We don't have the powers to do that in in, in the Scottish Parliament. Um, it's often the irony that Labour is often calling for things that we cannot implement, but aren't calling for the powers to be devolved to Hollywood. I think with independence, we could uh, we could galvanise the powers of a normal independent country and impose a windfall tax, a one-off windfall tax on companies like Amazon, or like ASOS, that have made tens of, of, of billions of profit in the pandemic to, to ease that burden on working families. Okay, and Lloyd? Uh, well... Those are fantastic ones, and you know, every every time uh, Emma and Olaf started to speak, I thought, "Oh, there's another one off my list." Uh, so I, I'm going to say Brexit, and and not just for the trade and the economy side of things, but also you know, you know because it would be fantastic to reconnect Scotland to the world's biggest single market uh, and, and seize all the uh, amazing opportunities that come with EU membership, but also. Uh, 
workers' rights are being eroded by this UK government. Absolutely. And we've seen the result of that through the recent P&O scandal. Uh, and so for me, a part of building, as Olaf was saying, a redistributive, fairer economy is ensuring that workers have uh, a stronger set of rights than they do right now. And that is a big opportunity that we have as an independent country to build an economy that works for everybody, especially people who work in it. I can't think of a better comment to end on. So Emma Knox, uh, Lloyd Melville and Olaf Standoff, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thank you. It was brilliant. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.